As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, you know, obviously all year we've been talking about inflation and supply chain issues and shortages. But one of the first areas that we really started talking about uh, was the uh, had to do with the disruptions in semiconductors. Yeah, I think this was like our entry into global supply chain issues. Um, We started talking about semiconductors and this idea that there was a shortage of these chips that were needed for all sorts of things. And I think, you know, if you are of a certain age or generation, you tend to think of semiconductors as something that goes into a computer. But of course, nowadays they show up in phones, in, you know, things like refrigerators and of course, um, cars as well. Just almost every major appliance now seems to have some sort of chip embedded in it. Right. And we did like a um, a six episode series, I think, uh, earlier this year about chips. Uh, but the chip story, even though we haven't talked about it as much lately, it really hasn't gone away. And I think I just saw last week there was a story about some chip manufacturer in Malaysia reducing production. They're pretty regular stories. You mentioned automobiles about uh, car companies still not being able to uh, get an adequate supply of chips and thus being forced to cut production. So they the issues have not gone away by any stretch. Yeah, I think Toyota made a massive downgrade to um, yeah. its expected production. But yeah, th- so this is something that I've been wondering about. So on, on the one hand, yes, we have some COVID outbreaks in Asia that have disrupted semiconductor um factories or manufacturers, particularly in Malaysia, where they manufacture, my understanding is they manufacture some components for semiconductors or something like that. So, okay, you have the Delta variant, and that's not production to some extent. But on the other hand, you know, as you said, this issue has been going on for quite some time now, like more than a year And the big question is, why aren't we getting to a better place in terms of production? At this point, the semiconductor companies know that they need to boost production. They know there's lots of demand out there. So why isn't that happening? Well, hopefully we are going to get some answers today on the show why it is that we're now in the middle of September uh, and we still don't have something resembling like a smooth semiconductor supply chain. We're going to be going back to our first guest. 
that we had on the Semiconductor Series. I think he actually appeared twice already. The uh, last time was in March. We're going to be speaking with uh, Stacy Razgan. He's managing director and senior analyst at Bernstein covering U.S. semiconductors. He's going to hopefully answer all of our questions. So, Stacy, uh, welcome back to Odd Lots. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me again. So are we right? I mean, it appears not only are the issues persisting, like in some some in some measures, things seem to be getting worse. Yeah. I mean, so we had hoped that by now things would be getting back to some semblance of normalcy. And, and, and you're right. They're really not. It's actually getting worse, not better in, in many parts of the market. So we still are seeing, you know, production shortfalls. We're still seeing shortages. You know, we'd been hoping, obviously, that, you know, COVID would be, you know, on, on the decline at this point. It is not. It is still causing disruptions. You mentioned Malaysia and some other areas. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're not back to normal yet. Uh, we're still seeing some of the same issues that we've been seeing for quite a while. So what exactly is driving those disruptions then? So, you know, you mentioned some COVID outbreaks in parts of Asia, but it seems to be, you know, we might see some factory closures, uh, some isolated factory closures, but it seems like the issues are sort of more endemic than just, you know, an outbreak at a particular factory. Yeah, so it may be helpful to to go back a little bit and talk about what caused these shortages in the first place. And I, mm. I talked about this. I think I can't remember. It was the, maybe it's the second time that I was on. But um, if we if we look at the automotive uh, sector first, uh, that's where we're seeing some of the biggest issues. We've seen the biggest issues all the whole time. And you're right. We're still actually seeing production cuts. You mentioned Toyota. We also had recently GM and Ford and and a bunch of others, and, it, and it's been going. So they're still seeing shortages. You have to remember the issue there was initial supply chain whipsaws, you know, in the, in the beginning of COVID, factories got shut down, um, you know, people were locked in their houses, they weren't driving demand, at least initially, for a, for a small amount of time, plummeted. And remember, the auto vendors canceled all their orders. Right. Demand came roaring back, obviously, the plant started opening up, they went back hat in hand to try to get capacity to get production, and, and it just didn't exist. Um, and it was like, well, you know, get in line, right? It'll, it'll take time. And remember what I said, you know, even if you're starting, even if you have the capacity available, it takes months um, to make these chips from a from a dead start. And so that caused, you know, cascading effects. I mean, it still has. Right. And, and you know, the, the other issue in the other end markets was just demand was very strong. And that was part of the reason we saw issues in auto as well. I mean, the capacity that they were using got backfilled in many cases by other stuff. But just in general, we've seen really, really strong demand. I mean, much stronger than I think anybody thought was was going to be possible in, in things like PCs and like anything that was sort of work from home, study from home, play from home. Um, I think you also need to couple this with the fact that the industry itself, I, I mean, you know, remember semis, it costs billions of dollars to add capacity. And, you know, historically, they, you know, they added capacity to demand that they saw. And when demand was very, very strong, much stronger than that, we just didn't have the capacity that was available. And because that demand is still strong, you know, we're still shy. We're still short. We're still tight. Um, and so now you have to layer on on top of all that, though. You know, remember, this, this stuff is never smooth. And when you have these kinds of problems, they do cascade and they cause more issues. And it, it's just it's just a big mess. I mean, it still is. And so it, it hasn't. We haven't had time to actually bring enough capacity online to to alleviate things. And the demand, you know, in most parts of the market, we can talk about where people are worried about, you know, demand maybe starting to, to roll over a bit. But in general, demand is still strong. Supply is still tight. Um, and, and we've still got problems. It, it, it hasn't it hasn't uh, alleviated yet. And now you throw, you know, the resurgence of Delta on top of this. And you, again, you mentioned Malaysia. What they do a lot in Malaysia, they do what's called back end. It's a lot of what's called packaging. 
So they don't necessarily, they don't have like semiconductor factories in Malaysia. They're not making like chips. Once you actually make the chip in, in the factory, you have to, what's called packaging, you have to put the electrical leads and everything on it such that you can take that chip and actually put it on a circuit board. So they do that kind of stuff, assembly and testing and other things in, in Malaysia. And a lot of those um, issues were were impacted in, 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 a lot of that stuff's done in Southeast Asia and, and a lot of those uh, things were impacted by by COVID. So that's just something else, icing on the cake on top of everything else and not getting better. Yeah, that was one of the things I remember we talked about uh, in one of our semiconductor episodes with uh, Willie Shi at Harvard Business School. And obviously, just like in addition to uh, the sort of technical challenges, any given ship has a highly globalized supply chain. And so, as you mentioned, maybe it gets manufactured somewhere in Taiwan, but then some sort of packaging happens in Malaysia. And so there must be, to some extent, issues that are the, the sort of generalized supply chain issues that are affecting more or less everything must have some uh, having some impact on semiconductors specifically. It, it, it is. And so you're right. So semis are extremely global. I forget I forget how many different borders the average semiconductor crosses like in its in its lifetime, you know, from from initial production to actually getting sold to the end user. But, it, but it's a lot. Right. And you're right. They can be, you know, it can be a U.S. company that's using a Taiwanese foundry to make it where it gets packaged in Malaysia and then it goes to a distributor in China. And like it, it's, it's all over the place. So there's there's a lot of that. And there are big logistical channel uh, the challenges that we're seeing right now. Shipping costs are actually getting getting much higher. We've seen port shutdowns in, in China and other places as they're trying to control the spread of uh, of, of Delta. Um, we've seen container ships like like stacking up. I think maybe the, I can't remember if, if if the Suez Canal was blocked the last time we chatted. I can't remember. But um, we're, we're seeing tons of uh, logistical challenges. A lot of semiconductor companies and frankly, other companies, too, are starting to talk about this as well. Like when, when they talk on earnings calls and everything, we're starting to see some of those costs go up. And some of these supply chains are, are, are it's, just, it's, it's just a big hot mess. I mean, the, the whole thing, which I guess shouldn't really be a surprise. I mean, I, again, you know, we had a, a global potential global catastrophe, you know, that was that was causing this. I'm part of me is like amazed that it's been as resilient as it has been, frankly. <laughs> but but it is it is it is still causing problems. And, and, and it's funny, like the, obviously the question I, I get the most is how long is it going to last? I, I wish I had an answer. I, I don't, you know. And it's really funny when you when you think about the stocks, right? And, and and the companies. I mean, they're they're still putting up monster numbers. The sector right now, in terms of revenue, is on track to grow probably twenty five percent this year and blow past five hundred billion dollars for the first time in 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 history. Um, and and every quarter, the companies are putting up better and better numbers. And I would say investor conviction is getting less and less, like the the, the higher the numbers go, because again, we've all seen this num- this movie before. We see this massive, strong demand. Nobody really knows how much of it is real and how much of it is phantom. We talked about double ordering mm-hmm. and, and, and everything else the last time I was here. Um, you know how this is when, when things are uncertain, they, they order more. And, and, and so, like, it's, it's funny. The stocks haven't done much of anything, you know, even as the numbers have continued to go up and up and up because people still don't know how sustainable this, this, this strong demand is. So, Stacey, this is something that I wanted to ask you about. So, you know, you mentioned this cascade effect early on, and I, you didn't mention it specifically, but there is this bullwhip effect that seems to be at play where everyone was expecting demand to drop, um, companies cut orders, so the semiconductor manufacturers um, sort of backed off from production, and then things turned out better than people had expected, and there was loads of demand, and the semiconductor companies have been trying to catch up ever since. But I I guess my question is, like, one, is there something in particular about 
semiconductors and the manufacturing process that makes them more sensitive to the bullwhip effect, um, this cascade Mm -hmm. idea. And then secondly, one of the things that comes into play when there's a shortage, a supply shortage, is everyone starts stockpiling, right? So it's hard to tell what's real Mm -hmm. demand versus what's just people hoarding components because they think they're not going to be able to get them. So what's your sense of, um, of that at the moment, real demand versus stockpiling? Yeah, yeah. So let, let's address the the, the first question. There, like, why are semis the the, the bullwhip, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's they're at the back of the supply chain. So again, you, you think about them. I mean, I'll, I'll take a microprocessor for a PC just as a simple example. Mm-hmm. You know, like Intel or AMD or whoever makes the processor. And then who does that that gets sold to? Like a Taiwanese ODM, maybe it's called original device manufacturer who builds like a notebook computer, and then they stick it on a plane or a boat, right? And they they sell it. You know, they send it off to HP or or, or something like that. And then HP you know, sells it to, to to Best Buy and then Best Buy sells it to you or like, however, there's probably other steps in there as well, but there's a lot of points within that chain where you can get inventory building or bleeding or anything else. And and the, the, the fluctuations tend to magnify as you work from the front of the chain back. I mean, this is a very well-known thing. You see it all the time. And the semis are at the back of that supply chain. So small fluctuations, even small fluctuations in end demand like at the customer level can propagate backwards and have correspondingly larger impact, like the farther back you go in the chain and the semis are just at the back. And, and, and remember, I think we talked about this last time, but you know, that the semi companies have to plan in this environment and, and their actual, my opinion at least is that semiconductor company management teams, their actual visibility into what their end customers are truly doing is precisely zero. They have no idea. They, they do the best they can. I'm not, I'm not blaming them. It's not good or bad, right? It, it, it just is. <laughs> Right. And, and the best companies out there are like are, are willing to accept this and, and, and deal with it. Um, but their actual visibility is, is not great. But by the way, companies are trying to do some stuff right to, to, to get to your second question around potential double ordering and stockpiling. And so, so yes, this, this is a standard kind of behavior and probably not just in semis. I mean, this is normal human behavior. Like when you can't get something that you need, you tend to order more. And again, this is a phenomenon known as double ordering. And I mean, a simple example, let's say you're making widgets. You, and you need a, a you know a hundred semiconductors you know what whatever right and your your vendor says okay I, I can't I'll, I'll give you ten I I can supply ten and and I'll give you the other you know ninety that you need I'll give you those in in fifty weeks <laughs> right so your your next step is to order a thousand semiconductors from wherever you can hope to cobble them together on the hope that you can build up the hundred that you need and then you cancel all the other orders right. And so what semiconductor investors tend to watch for, this is a phenomenon known as lead times. Like how long does it take to get the product after you order it? And those lead times are stretching out. What, what investors tend to watch for is when the lead times start to pull back in, because that's usually when the cancellations start to happen. And so what a lot of companies are doing right now is they're actually doing things like putting in like long lead time orders, non-cancelable orders, for example. Generally in the space, historically, that you, you didn't do that. There were no penalties to canceling orders. Um, Companies now, some companies are starting to put things like non-cancelable orders. Other companies are parsing their orders. It's like, well, I know this comp- customer is ordering a hundred parts, but I think they only need thirty, so I'm going to only ship them thirty. Right? We're seeing some of that as well. And so the companies are doing the best they can in this environment to try to manage through it. Is is their stockpiling going? Un- undoubtedly, their stockpiling. I, I don't see how there couldn't be. Can you measure it? No, it's hard. <laughs> right? So, uh, and, and I'll give you an example. Like there, there are some cases where, again, you go look at the auto vendors, even if they're stockpiling, and by the way, they, they may be stockpiling so much, but we, we still are seeing actual production cuts. So clearly, you, you know, even if they're, they're stockpiling some parts, clearly they don't have enough of what they need to build the cars that they want. 
Right, so we're still seeing some some the, some primary examples here of, of situations where actual shortages, where the shortages still seem to be real, because we wouldn't be having actual production cuts if they didn't have actual shortages. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Obviously, this what you sort of described is going on in a range of industries. Are we going to hit one day and could this be a source of investor concern where like we wake up and there is just a crazy glut of chips because so many uh, entities or is it so is capacity so constrained generally that it's just hard to imagine there ever being a point where there is a huge uh, oversupply. I mean, never, never say never, right? And the, the normal practice is, yeah, you, you'd wake up one day and you'd see a glut. That, that is normally how this would happen. And again, like, this is why investors are worried. And this is why, even though the numbers are going up, the stocks aren't really going up all that much. Multiples are, are coming down. And people are worried, you know, that we're, you know, getting closer to peak, right? And I guess mathematically, like by definition, we're getting closer to peak every day. At the same time, we could be quote unquote close to peak for quite some time, right? Because as long as this stuff's working out again, the other thing you need to remember with, with this is even though demand is really strong, I mean, like you, you need, you need everything. So that's the thing is like the auto value, you see, I'll pick on the auto vendors again. Like, I mean, they could be getting 95% of everything they need, but if they don't have the 5% that they, that they need, they, they can't ship the car, right? And you could have a situation where like you'd have auto vendor A, you know, they have 95% and they're, they're short 5% and auto vendor V has 95% of what they need and they're short 5%, but it's a different 5%, right? Um, and so that may be some of what, what, what we're seeing right now. So like, I, I, I don't know, like, yeah, at some point we, we may get a glut. And now at the same time, you can also argue that like post COVID, some of this demand is real. And so like, like I'll, I'll look at PCs, for example. PCs right now were incredible, have been incredibly strong. I mean, we were doing 250 to 260 million PCs a year pre-COVID in like in 2019. 2020, we did 300 million. 2021, right now, we're on track to do probably close to 350, which would sort of match the, the peak in the industry, which is in 2011. And there's a big controversy in PCs right now. Are PCs going to grow next year? They're going to be down or like what, whatever. But even if they're down, they're probably not going back to 250. Right. Probably not. Like we, I could argue that there was a structural case of that like, like whatever the normalized run rate of PCs ought to be, it's probably higher than it was pre COVID. And you can make that argument about a number of, of, of end markets. And so even if we get a glut, some of this thing, we, we probably had pulled forward in, in digitization and everything pre COVID or, or since pre COVID. And we've got more people doing remote, remote work's going to be a thing from now on, like whether or not like people start to go back to the offices more. Um, I could argue that some structural level of event things should be higher. You know, in terms of capacity, I, I think, Tracy, you asked during the intro, why isn't the semiconductor industry added capacity? It just takes time, right? They're all trying. I mean, you can go look at like this, the semi-cap guys, like, like Wafer Fab Equipment, WFE is, is going through the roof right now. And you've got big forecasts from, from big companies, you know, throwing out big numbers in terms of what they're planning on spending over the next few years. Capacity probably will get added. It just takes time to get added. 
So the worry, obviously, is that capacity comes online right when the man starts to roll off. And and I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I guess we'll th- this year will probably be fine still in terms of the, the fundamentals of the numbers. We'll see what 22 and 23 look like. Those are the kind of time frames we're probably talking about in terms of supply coming on. Um, and we'll see how well it is to uh, well, well matched it is to demand like when it does it. Hmm. So I wouldn't expect this to make a massive difference to the supply demand imbalance. But what are the chances that you start to see customers, the people who are actually ordering chips, just back away or decide they're going to design more analog stuff Um you know, in order to avoid this problem. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, last week, Bloomberg ran an article about air conditioning manufacturers uh, dropping copper Mm -hmm. components because the price of copper was so high. Uh And they're all starting to, not all of them, but some of them are starting to switch to aluminum. So I'm wondering, like, could you see a similar thing with semiconductors? Or is it just, you know, pretty impossible given the nature of the types of electronics we're talking about? What do you mean, like switching away from semiconductors to something else? Yeah, I guess like, I guess going analog, right? There were like a few car companies that were saying they're going to like drop some of the complicated electronics in order to oh. produce. Well, we, we are seeing some of that. So some of the, the car we've seen like cars, for, I'm, I'm, I'll make it up, but like, sh- you know, shipping without, you know, the, the electronically controlled rear view mirror or stuff like that, right? We're seeing some things because remember... You know, if, if you're going to ship a car, you kind of need the full kit. If there's things you could leave out where the car is still saleable and then add them later, like you, you could do, we're seeing some of that. The other thing we're seeing with like auto vendors sometimes is they're building the cars like every, they're building the car complete except for the stuff they have and they're parking it so that when they, when they get the, uh, the part they need, then they can ship. I actually suspect we're seeing this in PCs as well. Um, my maths and we published this, my math suggests that as strong as PCs are right now, I think CPU shipments, the microprocessor shipments are even stronger. And we've heard like like HP has sort of talked about earn, on earnings calls about building things like strategic inventory. I suspect they're building kits, you know, and, and, and sitting on the shelf. And so as soon as they get the final parts that they're missing, that they can they can ship. So we are seeing some of that. So you could call that stockpiling in some sense, right? It's hard to know how widespread it is and everything else. But I mean, it's a normal behavior that we might see. In cars, we are seeing, um, to, your, to your point, some, some of these things are getting left out. But the thing with cars, it, you can't just like, like we, we can't go back, you know, like my, my first car was a 1978 Toyota Corolla. It didn't have very much in the ways of semiconductors in it, right? We're, we're probably not going back to something like that. You, you can't, right? And in fact, some, some one thing we're seeing from the auto vendors, the, the, the limited supply of semis that they do have, they're actually selling higher end cars, right? They're actually prioritizing that because the profits are higher. Right. So they're, 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 they're saving the limited semiconductors they have to actually make as most money as possible with them. And so in some cases, we may be seeing like mix actually going up rather than rather than down. Oh, yeah. I've, I've wondered about that uh, with 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 various industries, the the degree to which like, OK, if you have a shortage of components overall, uh, I remember we were talking about this uh, a little bit. We actually did an episode uh, several weeks ago, like on uh, bathtubs and uh, appliances. But I've been wondering the degree to which end users of technology or raw materials are changing their mix and prioritizing the production of the uh, the higher margin lines. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to know. I, I do think in auto we we've seen that. You know, in, in other end market again, I, I could mention graphics cards. Although I, I mean, people you, you can't even buy a graphics card right now; they're just selling everything they can make right now. Um, but yeah, I, I do think we're seeing some of it. At least anecdotally, um, we we are seeing it. How much is, you know, obviously on top of everything else, 2021 has seen this incredible crypto boom. How much does that contribute at the margins to tightness in the uh, semiconductor space? And how much as a uh, professional semiconductor analyst 
does that force you to get to know this sort of new industry? It, it, well, it's it's not that new anymore. Right. Right? And we, we've enough. seen a number of crypto crypto booms and and and, and busts over over the yeah, years. Yeah, fair enough. I don't think like so. You, you can talk about like like the crypto impact on shortages in, in a couple of different ways. They're just like, for example, shortages of graphics cards. And again, go try to buy one. The other is like taking up capacity at, at the foundries. And I remember during 2018, you had um, a lot of the the Bitcoin miners, guys like Bitmain that make custom chips to mine Bitcoin. I think at one point they were a 10% customer of TSMC, like for a heartbeat, right? So for that was like back during like the 2018 bubble. I don't think we've seen anything near that much for for the for the the guys that make the custom mining chips this time. I don't think TSMC has been prioritizing those guys nearly as much. But in general, I mean, we've just got tightness all around at the leading edge, and certainly that's been part of the problem uh, with with graphics cards. It's been hard to get, and obviously the demand has been very strong. I'd also say, like, even beyond with for graphics cards, even beyond crypto, the gaming cycle this time is is much stronger. Obviously, we hit, we had COVID, and people were trapped in their houses, and they wanted to. to the video games were a good way to pass the time, so they wanted to buy the cards. And the products from both NVIDIA and AMD this time were actually much better than the prior cycle, which was kind of like, you know, second half of 2018. And so there's actually a lot more, I think, demand from gamers for the parts this time versus last time, where I, where I do think a lot of that incremental demand um, uh, was from the crypto miners. And so what happened in 2018, 2019, when the miners stopped buying, the gamers didn't really want to step up and, and pick up the slack. And so obviously we saw some fairly big shortfalls you know, the beginning of end of 18, beginning of 19 for, for guys like NVIDIA. This time, the, it, their new cycle, it's called it's called Ampere is, is the code name for it. I, I do think actually gaming demand is quite strong for it. They, they can't get the parts. So one hope for NVIDIA is, is if and when the miners stop buying that the, the gamers will start to pick up the slack. And and we'll see. Like, we're, we're not there yet in terms of a de- demand is still like off the charts, I, I think, for, for both NVIDIA and AMD for, for, game, for graphics cards. So let's talk about, I think actually the first time we had you on, it was about like the fall of Intel or Intel stumble. That was like the first theme. And of of course it had a pretty rough 2020 and they had fallen behind. So so then they bounced, then they hired the new CEO, uh, Gelsinger, and the stock rallied and people liked this idea of like, oh, they're going to like reinvest in production because that's the core issue that we talked about. They're falling behind on productive capabilities. Now the stock has had a pretty rough year once again. So what is the current issue? What are the big concerns right now facing Intel? You, you bet. It's a few things. So you're right. Well, the day they hired Pat Gelsinger, I think the stock was up like 20%. And I get it. Like, I like Pat. Pat is the guy they probably should have hired two years ago, right? And so he's, he's the right guy for the job. I think. Now, that being said, he's not a magician either. <laughs> and he has to play the hand that he's been dealt. And, and the hand that he was dealt was, is, is, is pretty tough. And, and I think I said this the first time it was on, but the problems that Intel's having, they didn't just develop like over the last couple of quarters. These have been 10 years in the making. And they're not going to get fixed in a couple of quarters. They will probably take five or 10 years to, um, uh, to, to, to fix. And so they've done a few things actually since we chatted. I think that was last November when we chatted. And, and so we've, we've, they've done a few things. Um, number one, we talked a lot about their difficulties at seven nanometers. So they, they're claiming that seven nanometers is now fixed. They're claiming the issue was they they did, they weren't using um, EUV, what's called extreme ultraviolet lithography, which is a very advanced type of patterning technology to make very small features. Um, and I guess that 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 is their their public stance on on what the solution was. They're going to use they're going to be much bigger using EUV. And that's going to fix the problem. It's also, by the way, clear probably why they didn't want to use it. It's very expensive. Their capex this year is going to end up to something like twenty billion dollars, and that's not Foundry. That's their their own core business. But they don't really have a choice. So they they've claimed that's fixed. They've also now, uh, uh, I don't know, a month, maybe two months ago, they put out a roadmap, 
and this road, they did a few things. Number one is they adjusted their, their nomen. Remember we talked about the node nomenclature and how like Intel nodes didn't correspond to TSMC nodes in terms of process. So they've changed their nomenclature to align. <laughs> okay. So what they were talking about seven nanometers before that, that is now Intel four, four nanometers. Okay. Fine. What, whatever. I'm, I'm not going to knock them because they were, they weren't gaining anything by being a pedantic about it. So I mean, okay. Fine. But then the other thing is they said they're going to do kind of like five evolutions in four years. They're, they're going to do, they're doing 10 now and they're going to go to, I think, I can't remember what it's called, 10 enhanced super fin or something. And then they're going to go to Intel 4 and then Intel 3, which is like a, like an enhanced 7. And then they're going to go to something called 20A. And 20A is like in back in, in like 2024, 2025. And, 20, and 20A technology We'll have a couple of um, new innovations. It's going to have something called a gate all around transistor structure, which we could talk about what that is, but it's a new type of structure to, on the transistor to get higher performance and, 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 and everything. And so that's, that's one thing. The industry, by the way, is wrestling with that technology. Samsung has at their roadmap. Intel's now putting it on the roadmap. And they're going to have something called back, backside power, which again, we could talk about, but they'll have some innovations there. And what they're basically saying is, by that time frame, by that sort of like 2024, 2025 time frame, when we introduce this 20A process using this, you know, this gate all around architecture, we will have, we will have caught up and then surpassed TSMC at that point. So they put out this roadmap that says in like four, four or five years, we think we can close the gap with TSMC and, and, and 2025 and beyond, we will surpass it. So a couple of things with that. Um, number one, even, even though it's, it, it sounds good on paper, it's a very aggressive roadmap. Like I said, it's sort of four iterations in five years. And their, their, you know, trajectory and execution of the last, like, decade, you know, this would be a big change. So more power to them, they can do that. But the problem is, like, even if they can execute on it, and, and it's not a done deal, they basically came out and told everybody, we're still going to be behind for the next four years, <laughs> right? So the window is still, for everybody else to attack us is still open for at least, like, four years. So that was the, was the, the dark side of what they were saying. So even if they execute on it perfectly, the window's still open for four years or, or more. And if they don't execute on it, they're screwed. But he had to come out and put a credible, like a, a semi-credible, like like statement out that this says we can close the gap because his alternative was to lay down and die, right? Because if they can't catch up by that twenty twenty five or whatever, they'll they'll never catch up. That that's it, right? So that's that's one thing that they're doing. Um, the other thing they're doing is they're they're making more use of outsourcing. And again, when they it's they're they're doing a lot of stuff in house. They're doing some more more stuff at TSMC, and so they're booking capacity. I guess three nanometer capacity at TSMC. And so we'll see what kind of products they make. They're actually doing some graphic stuff over there now, and they're going to be doing some other things. And then thirdly, they're going to be focusing on, on specialized packaging, what's, what, what's called chiplets, where I'm, I'm disaggregating the chip into various types of functionalities and making each of those smaller pieces potentially different places, and then combining those together. And this is something where Intel thinks they have an advantage. And they've got very good, this is packaging, they've got very good packaging technology, but so do others. And so we'll see how all this works out. So that, that, that's sort of the plan. Right. And then, and then, and then, and then they're going to be building out all this foundry stuff. And to do that, they're going to be getting subsidies. Right. So this is the other, the other thing. So that in general, the, the strategy, like, like sim simplified is to try to stabilize the roadmap, try to put out some sort of credible path to catching up. And, and thirdly, to beg for money from the government, which, which by the way, is not a dumb idea. Right. If, if anybody, if there's any time right now to, to go get money from, from governments to, to build out semiconductor capacity, now's the time.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this is something that the Biden administration has been, you know, specifically calling out and targeting um, the idea of making the U.S. stronger in semiconductor manufacturing. Like how much of a difference could that make um, to future supply demand balance? Well, they probably I mean, I mean, right now it's 52 billion dollars, I think, is the number on the, on the table, which, which frankly is a rounding error. Again, TSMC is talking about one single company. They're going to go spend 50 Sorry, $100 billion over three years, one company. So the U.S. right now is saying $52 billion, which is manufacturing and R&D and a bunch of stuff um, over like a five-year period for the entire U.S.-based industry. So, I mean, it's, it kind of gives you an idea of the scale. Um, it's probably not going to make much of a difference, in, but, but it's a start. you got to start somewhere. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll see like, like how that gets spread out between Intel and, and Samsung and TSMC. And it's funny, you know, Intel, like they, they did a paid article in Politico a little while back where, I, I mean, Gelsing was basically saying, don't give the money to foreign companies, give it to us. Because like TSMC, like they're going to build, they're building this factory in Arizona, it's five nanometers. By the time they bring it online, that's going to be lagging edge and they're going to leave all the leading edge IP offshore. And so you should give the money to us effectively, it was saying that, which, which is, I personally think if we're really interested in building up the US like supply chain and semis, you need to make it resilient. I don't think you can bet on one company. I think you need to spread the wealth around. And, and guys like TSMC and Samsung, they already have customers. Like really, Intel's talked about they're going to work with Qualcomm and some others like in, in like five years, like maybe we'll, we'll see, right? TSMC and these other guys have customers today. So I, I'm of the opinion it'd probably be better to, to spread that wealth around. Um, and, by the, and we'll see if $52 billion is, is where it stops. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think if we really want to make a difference, we need more. But, but it's a start. So we'll, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, there's some other issues with, with Intel. Like we talked about the stock. I mean, the, the strategy sounds credible. So you could ask yourself, why has the stock been like such a dog? The problem is like he's, you know, they've been running around like trying to drum up excitement for what this vision could look like. And, and I get that. But I'm of the opinion they're about to they, they have to drop a hammer on us because you start thinking about this, this stuff like what, what's going what's going to happen in terms of capital and capital intensity is going up. Free cash is going down. Gross margins next year are way too high. They need to come down. Um, they're talking about they think PCs are going to grow next year. I personally think that they're saying that because like they're, they're screwed if PCs don't grow next year. <laughs> Right. Um, I think numbers need a need a fairly sizable reset. And we've got they've got an analyst day coming up in, in November when everybody's sort of widely expecting them to to give us like the model, like what is the vision for what this thing looks like during the transition as we go from where we are now to where maybe we're going in, in five years or whatever. Um and people are really hesitant to do anything with the stock in front of that analyst day because we don't actually know how low things like gross margins and free cash flow and everything are gonna go. 
but you can make the case that they need to go that they need to go a lot lower than they're getting modeled right now. So so this sort of brings back, you know, even prior to so okay, during the last 18 months of COVID and so forth, chip industry demand has been extremely strong and that's contributed to the tightness. And one of the themes that we uh that was discussed even prior to COVID was that the chip industry seemed to be getting less uh, less uh, cyclical overall. And so, you know, for years, the 80s and 90s, I think chips were seen as this classic boom-bust industry. And then for years going, uh, you know, I don't know, the last decade, there's just been this secular growth in semiconductors overall because they get put into, like, everything from cars to refrigerators to computers to PCs to chairs and so forth. Is there any... Is that fundamental theme expected to continue that regardless of what happens, the secular growth of chips is going to continue? Or are there concerns that at some point some of these uh, boom bust cycles uh, might return? I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. Okay. And, and so I'll give you my own view. So number one, let, let, let me put the near term cyclical concerns aside for a moment. Long term, I'm actually more positive on, on semis coming out of COVID than I've been in a long time in terms of that secular growth theme. I, I am. And look, you know, this, the sector, I mean, like last year was $440 billion. And off the 2020 base, even if semis just grew 5% a year over the cycle, you'd have a trillion dollar industry by 2035. And by the way, this year, semis are probably not going to grow 5%. They, they may grow 25% this year off, off of that 440. And if they did, we'd, we'd get pretty close to $550 billion this year. And so we'll, we'll see what things do, right? But you're going to have a lot of growth this year. And so like, even, even if we go into a downturn next year, who knows? Maybe we, we could, right? Sure. Um, you think about like that runway, we're, we're, we're likely still to be well over $500 billion would be my guess, even in a downturn scenario, which is much higher than we were. Um, and, and, and long term, this idea of like, is the industry someday a trillion dollar industry? I, I think absolutely it will be a trillion dollar industry, whether it's 2030 or 2035 or like what, what have you. Um, I think a lot of the trends we're seeing are real. This whole idea of, 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 of content increase and, and, and digitization and everything else, um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, and, and more so than I have been. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty positive long term on semis. Now, the near term cyclical, this is kind of interesting because you kind of mentioned like semis used to be really, really cyclical and then they got less cyclical. What we used to see, we used to see these big supply cycles where like supply would exceed demand and pricing would, would, would follow when you get these really big swings. And the last really major supply cycle we had was, was the, the tech bubble in like 2000, 2001. Mostly since then, we had what are, what are called inventory cycles. Again, semis are at the back of the supply chain and you get fluctuations in demand that can propagate backwards and you get bigger swings. And, and usually was, uh, an inventory cycle happens when like the customers of the channel starts to bleed or build inventory. And so they, they, they reduce purchases of semis for a little bit and they bleed out inventory or they increase purchases and they build inventory. And so semis overship or undership demand, but it's much shorter. They tend to last a quarter or two or three and, and, and they show up as kind of like resets. You sort of reset the base either up or down rather than these big swings. You look what's going on right now. We're, we're having a good old fashioned supply cycle right now. We haven't had one of these in a long, long time. So I don't know how this will end. Like historically, they tend to end badly. You know, and so we'll 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 see. Although I I could also argue that, like I said, maybe some of the secular drivers of the industry are, are, are and they you know they were if you go back to when we used to have big supply cycles, I would I would argue the secular growth in the industry was pretty strong back then too. So maybe you have that to try to offset it somewhat. But I mean, we we we've, we've got a supply cycle going on right now. We haven't had seen one of these out, outside of memory in a long long time. You know, but you you can believe that and be be nervous about the near to medium term cyclical and still have a positive long-term inter- view in terms of like secular growth of the industry. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. 
Well, just Stacey, any other big sort of thoughts, things that we should watch for next? I mean, you mentioned the Intel Analyst Day. You know, like what else is on your radar? We we should do like a whole one of these calls. Somebody just probably on, on semicap on wafer fabrication equipment. That's a whole other part of the industry, right? <laughs> yeah, and I want to do one on a. Uh, you know, the one that we never did in the original series was the ASML. Uh-huh. And so maybe we got at some point we got to do that one, too. That's like the one big company we've never really done. I, I would I would be thrilled. Yeah, I, I would be thrilled. Again, I, I don't cover ASML. I have a colleague of mine that is, but we can talk about it. And like the semi-cap industry in general, uh, I, again, it, it's even farther back in the supply chain. So you do get you get cyclicality there. But again, like that, that's another one of these areas like long term, I'm, I'm, I'm like that, that long term secular story on, on semi cap capital intensity going up, which has implications um, across the value chain, um, I, I think is, right. is, is hugely, is hugely interesting. That'll be uh, that'll be the next one we do. You, you, you let me know when I'll, I'll be there. We can talk about it. Sounds good. Stacy, uh, thank you so much for coming back on Oblot. Uh, you bet. My pleasure. Anytime. That was great. Thanks, Stacy. Tracy, I always like talking to Stacy. Obviously, you know, I think one of the interesting things that, you know, he pointed out, which I hadn't really thought of or appreciated before, is like just how far deep in the cycle the chip makers are and how little visibility mm. they have into end demand. And so, on top of everything else, you can really see why so deep into this crisis things aren't really smoothed out yet. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, now you have this issue of double ordering and how much of the demand is real versus yeah. people stockpiling. It feels like that's just going to cloud it up and, and make it much more difficult in the future. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of um, this is very like geeky, odd lot stuff, but it reminded me a little bit of the corporate bond market where when there's a big sale of hmm. like a bond that everyone wants to get, um, people normally yeah. put in like padded orders so that they can get quite a lot. So, you know, they might not actually need $500 or something like that, but they'll put in a massive order hoping that they get some of that. You know, I kind of wonder, like, maybe that started because there was one really hot deal and then it just became normal behavior in the corporate bond market. I kind of wonder if this is a permanent shift for customers who are ordering semiconductors. Yeah, you should write about that, Tracy. That's a very, like, quintessential (laughs) Tracy analogy, the connection between the bullwhip effect in semiconductors and uh, b- uh, book building in the uh, at big corporate bond sale. <laughs> you got to write, you got to write Maybe that book. I, yeah, you I think the odd, like I'm imagining the Venn diagram of people who read about semiconductors and um, corporate It'd bond be a market. quintessential but... Tracy Odlots post. Uh, but no, I mean, I did think that was really interesting. Also like this idea that like, you know, there used to be um, free cancellations or the idea that, uh, yeah. you know, and also that the manufacturers then try to game it the other way so that if, uh, you know, if a client makes a $100 million order, they might only make $50 million on the assumption that, oh, this is really just a $50 million order uh, in disguise. And so, yeah, you can see why that on top of everything else. And then, of course, the emergence of the Delta variant, the fact that uh, chips cross so many borders during their uh, manufacturing uh, just for like the production itself and the packaging and put it in component. I'm not surprised we're recording this September 13th that uh, we're still seeing so many issues. 
Mm. I mean, one thing I will say is that I think the virus situation is improving in Malaysia. So maybe that will help. And maybe at a minimum, as these sort of Delta outbreaks start getting under control in Asia, hopefully that'll allow people to see how much of the current tightness in the market is driven by COVID disruptions versus the bullwhip effect um, that's been ongoing for like more than a year now. Yeah, exactly right. Well, uh, we definitely got to get uh, Stacy back or, uh, for the semi-cap ASML episode. And, um, you know, mm. this story is not over yet. No, it definitely isn't. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Stacy Razgin. He's at S. Razgin. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.